Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, thanks to everyone who has been sending in feedback uh, after I asked for it recently. Uh, it is greatly appreciated. Um, that includes both the uh, good and, well, I don't want to say bad feedback, but constructive criticism uh, that has actually been really, really useful. And people have some really great suggestions and really great thoughts on how we can improve the podcast and also ideas for future podcasts. So uh, we really appreciate it. And of course, you can continue to send in that feedback. That is great. Um, also, as a general reminder, because I haven't said this in a while, if you're not already subscribed to the podcast um, or are just listening off of SoundCloud or directly off of TechDirt, please subscribe. Uh, you know, there are these neat apps th to these days that make it really easy to subscribe and you get the podcast as soon as we upload it and it downloads it to your system and it lets you do all sorts of neat things like listen to the podcast really fast. And as I said on, on previous podcasts, when you listen to this podcast faster, I sound smarter. So, uh, that's cool. So please do that uh, if you can deal with it. Anyways, on to today's show. Um, over the uh, past few years, we've had a number of authors on the podcast, uh, including a bunch of science fiction authors. And today it's great to have another one on. Uh, I first came into contact with Elliot Pepper when he was out uh, sort of hustling a self-published science fiction novel called Cumulus a few years back. Uh, Cumulus immediately caught my attention for its... Uh, depiction of a very near future um, science-y, fiction-y world in which a giant, powerful internet uh, slash technology company with, uh, I would say, massive surveillance capabilities had some fairly incredible power over the world. Uh, it certainly had elements that rang true and, of course, included a uh, grabbing story that, that moves along quickly and, and really uh, keeps you turning the pages. Uh, earlier this year, Pepper published his most recent novel called Bandwidth, and again, it's another fun, somewhat dystopian, near-future science fiction novel that is also super fast-paced and, and very gripping, while again, sometimes feeling a little too close to potential reality for comfort, uh, which makes it fun and uh, maybe a little disturbing, but but in a good way. Uh, he's also got a bunch of other novels as well, and uh, they're all available digitally on Amazon for five bucks a pop. Um, or if you're part of the Kindle Unlimited program, it looks like they're all available for free that way, which is kind of cool. Um, and he is already scheduled to have his next novel out in the fall, which is really quick considering his last novel just came out last month. Um, Beyond that, Elliot and I, Elliot and I have uh, actually also collaborated on a few different projects as part of his job as editor at Scout, uh, which is a, an organization that does scenario planning and science fiction. Uh, and we've had the fun experience of working together to brainstorm out various possible ways in which technology may impact the near future. And it's been a lot of fun uh, whenever we get to sit down and discuss this kind of stuff. So I wanted to have Elliot on the podcast to talk about a few different things, including his books, of course, but also his story of 
the effort that he put into becoming an author and building a following and uh, you know building up a fan base and also just to discuss the general process of thinking through the role of technology and where it might lead us in the near future so elliot uh welcome to the podcast thanks so much mike it's really fun to be on the show um you know i've, I've really enjoyed uh, our conversations about this stuff, and, and they've certainly influenced the book. So it, it, it's fun to actually uh, get a chance to do this officially. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Or for, for the record, I guess. Or, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough as, as opposed to just, yeah, just disappearing into our own heads. Um, so so, so let, let's start, you know, with, you know, you've, you've written a whole bunch of books, and, and mm. initially, you know, you sort of went the self-published route, and then, you know, I know that you put in a tremendous amount of work to sort of build up a Following. Do you want to just sort of talk about that experience? Sure. Yeah. So um, uh, my my first two books were actually published with a small press, but I, I had a very unusual uh, sort of entry into the world of publishing. So um, I actually used to work for a number of different tech startups and, and co-founded a company and then joined a venture capital firm for a few years. And that was a really fun sort of uh, experience. It, it, I, you know, I've learned a lot about uh, how people build companies and how how sort of the, you know, w what it looks like inside the sausage factory. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and actually, my first novel uh, came about because I found the inside of that sausage factory really fascinating. And this was before, uh, you know, the TV shows like Mr. Robot or HBO's Silicon Valley. And so although uh, tech was obviously uh, a known thing, it wasn't really like a mainstream setting for a lot of fiction. Right. Um, and, uh, I've always been a voracious reader since I was a little kid. I was sort of that kid who could get lost in the library for hours and hours and hours. Um, and my, my parents would have to come find me. <laughs> and one of the things that I always sort of missed, um, was that working in the world of startups, anybody, and I'm sure there are a lot of listeners to this podcast who, you know, who have experience doing just that, um, you know, the sort of inherent human drama it, that, that comes about when you're working with a really small team. If, you know, you have ambitious people with, that are trying to change the world, you have fortunes won and lost, you know, there's just a lot of drama that happens. Um, and I kept thinking, wow, this is such a perfect milieu for adventure right for like a for a novel for for a thriller and i couldn't find one to read um and so I, that that sort of frustrated me for a while that I, I i couldn't really find one to read and that uh, a lot of the books that were about the experience of tech entrepreneurship mm -hmm. were very often business books right so it's sort of like oh i built this company i we ipo'd here's my story and the, those stories are sometimes useful um, and sometimes they have, you know, really tidbits of wisdom in there. A lot of the times they're not right. There's a lot of fluff in that, in that category, but regardless of whether they're useful or not, they're very often really clean, right? Like you sort of right. miss the, 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 the messier aspects uh, that everyone experiences. And so I thought, Hey, look, like there's this gap where there isn't a lot, uh, there aren't a lot of stories being told that help share the human experience of, of, of working in a startup. And I thought that was a really compelling human experience. And so I decided that if I couldn't find that book to read, I would try to write it. And um, so I just sat down and opened up 
Microsoft Word and started drafting chapter one. Um, and uh, throughout the process of drafting the first novel, um, I tried to learn more about publishing because, you know, I had worked in a number of different industries because tech is obviously changing many different industries, but I had never worked in publishing. And, uh, and you know, as I was exploring it, uh, you know, as, as you've written a lot about, uh, the Internet has really changed uh, every kind of <laughs> industry that right. relies on intellectual property and certainly publishing, right? Certainly music, movies, publishing, all that kind of stuff. And yeah. so... Um, you know, I was really inspired by writers like Hugh Howey, um, who, who, who decided to forego the traditional uh, publishing route where you, you know, pitch to get a literary agent and then that agent helps pitch your manuscript to publishers. And, you know, often the process takes years. Um, and then the honestly, a lot of the, the, the contracts that you're offered as a uh, first time novelists are tend to be terrible, right? right? So like really like almost no money, draconian terms that make no sense and uh, and you have no leverage. Uh, so I thought, well, that sounds like a crap deal. Um, so I think you know it, it like I, I I think I might try to go this indie route. Um, it just so happened that um, I shared the rough draft with uh, Brad Feld who, uh, I don't know. Some of your listeners might know. Um, he's uh, a venture capital investor based in Boulder, Colorado, and he's also a very voracious reader and, and sort of reviews books a lot. And mm-hmm. I really liked Brad's writing. We didn't know each other, um, but I really liked his writing, and I thought he might get a kick out of this story because he loves supporting founders. And so I was like, well, here's a cool adventure story. You like reading novels. You like startups. You, you might get a kick out of this. And, um, and he did. So I was really encouraged by that. And he actually ended up um, funding a, a new publishing startup and they gave hmm. me an offer on the first book. So uh, FG Press, which was based in Boulder, um, published my first two novels. And um, it was a really wonderful experience. I'm forever grateful for Brad's support. I mean, he's been a real champion of all of my books since day one. And it was really fun to sort of like try to learn the ropes with FG Press because, you know, as a publish a new publishing company, they were new to publishing, right? So right. we were sort of experimenting together and trying to figure out how we should do this thing together. Um, and that was really wonderful. And I learned an enormous amount. Um, and then, you know, that after you know, a couple years, uh, they ended up shutting down and I got the rights back Hmm. to the first two books. And so re-released them, self-published them. Right. So like re-released them myself and, uh, and then, um, self-published three more novels, um, uh, which I was really happy doing. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, and that's where we, we met in that time frame where, where, uh, you, you were kind enough to give Cumulus a read. Um, and, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I think that there, there's, uh, you know, there, there's an enormous amount of fun to be had, uh, when you have full creative control and the, the funny thing about self-publishing, I think it's very similar to say how blogging and journalism have sort of like changed over the, you know, the past 20 years, basically. Right. So like just most blogs are crap. Right. But, (laughs) but the few good blogs that are out there are some of the best writing you can find. Right. Right. 
And um, the same is true in the self-published world, right? So it used to be that there was, uh, you know, sort of a cadre of uh, gatekeepers who, who, who would select which books got published and then you wouldn't see all the books that didn't get published. They still got written, right? right. It's just that you didn't see them. Um, right. And now if you, if you're an author, you can self publish. So now more of the total number of books written are visible to the public. Um, most of them are terrible. Just like, right. I mean, honestly, most books published in any way aren't that great. Right. Uh, but a few of them do rise to the top. And so my goal as a, when I, whenever I self-publish or whenever I, I mean, honestly, this is true whenever I've helped work on any kind of product or service, mm -hmm. but certainly when I self-publish is that, um, you know, I always try to put the reader first. So I'm always trying to create an experience for the reader that is really compelling at every stage. So that's not just the, uh, that obviously involves the story. <laughs> I mean, that's like step one, but it, uh, where I think a lot of folks who might be just starting out with self-publishing, sometimes mess up is that they don't give equal consideration to things like uh, kerning and like cover design and, uh, <laughs> right. you know, the, the, the product copy and trying to get blurbs, you know, like all of these different things that are actually really important because they, it, they impact our experience of the story. I mean, can you imagine someone who, you know, a Napa Valley vineyard who like just didn't care about their label like that wouldn't make sense, right? That right. doesn't mean that wine isn't, you know, the wine isn't primary, but um, I think that's sort of where a lot of those sort of like funny situations happen. And so I, I've been very ha happy self-publishing because I knew that I wanted to compete with Random House. Right. Right. Like that's my goal. Like I want to have a book where a reader will read the whole book and no one notices who the publisher is anyway, unless you work right. in publishing. So like they, sh so for the reader, it just shouldn't matter. They shouldn't realize that it's, or they should, it shouldn't matter to them whether, how it was published. So that was always my goal, self-publishing. And then um, I actually uh, got an, uh, an editor reached out to me and uh, asked if I was working on a new book. And, and this was actually from Amazon Publishing, which is, Amazon's internal publishing arm, just like they have Amazon Prime Video that produces their own TV shows right. um, and works just like a studio. They have the same thing in publishing. Um, and so they work just like a traditional publisher. And uh, they, they uh, the editor there, who's wonderful, um, Adrian, reached out to me last year and said, hey, are you working on anything new? And I just so happened to finish the rough draft of Bandwidth, which is the book that came out um, last month. And, uh, she gave it a read and the next week, um, they, they made an offer and, uh, like a good, uh, experience self-publishing offer, I hired an IP attorney and <laughs> went to town on the contract, <laughs> um, <Right. laughs> which, which I'm really glad. But I mean, actually, honestly, their contract was one of the best contracts I've seen, even when I first received it. So I was, I was actually quite surprised, um, in terms of how, uh, how fair it was. Uh, but I, anyway, um, th that's getting a little in the weeds, but it's been a really fun journey and, and it's been a really, uh, overall really positive experience working with Amazon publishing on, on these books. Um, yeah. And, and I've heard that from other people who have gone with, with Amazon publishing. I mean, I don't, I don't mm. have any experience with them directly, but uh, you know, a few other people, um, that I know have, have gone that route or have even done the sort of like from self-publishing to Amazon and, and, mm -hmm. um, and people who have sort of lived in both worlds have said that like it is, there is sort of a world of difference in terms of how 
Amazon's publishing arm, even though it is sort of a traditional publisher, how it treats mm -hmm. authors compared to sort of, you know, the big New York publishers, um, which, you know, seem to view authors to some level as a commodity. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, we both know Barry Barry Eisler, right? I think yeah, he, who's, I, I think who's also actually... been, he's been on the podcast a few right. times. Right. Yeah. I was like, I'm pretty sure I've listened to his the last <laughs> right. time he was on this podcast. Um, so uh, Barry's great, and actually, I, I was really lucky that he he was kind enough to sort of give me some perspective on working with Amazon Publishing before I signed with them. So that was really right. uh, really lovely. And yeah, I mean, my experience has been really positive. Again, they they've given. I mean, like. What are some concrete examples? Like, I've had a lot of input on things like cover design and uh, promotional copy and mm -hmm. things like that, which many uh, readers don't realize authors often have zero say in. Right. right. So, like, I've had many friends who the publisher sends them their book and they're like, hey, look, here's your book, basically, right? Like, and here's the cover on the book. And they're like, right. what? Like, I hate this. Isn't like, <laughs> this is not at all how I envisioned it. Right. Um, right. And so, so uh, it, it definitely has felt, uh, but, but I don't want to like take that too far. Right. Like there sure. are, um, uh, there, there are many different publishing paths available. And I yeah. think that the beauty right now, for a writer is not that you should self-publish. Like I definitely think there are great reasons to never self-publish um, right. and not that you should work with Amazon publishing, not that you should work with random house. The beauty for a writer coming up today. And I think that right now is the best time um, for any new author starting out. I don't think there's ever been a better time in history. And the reason is that you have options, right? If, if I was, if I'd written my first book in the 1980s, I would have had no alternative path to right. working with the very small number of publishers who would have, uh, you know, published that kind of a book. Um, and that puts you at an extreme disadvantage. And that's the source of why a lot of why of a lot of those draconian terms, right? That it's been a very sort of unbalanced playing field yep. for a long time. And I think that what's wonderful right now is that that authors can do different things, that there is no one path, that actually the fact that you have options is what gives you strength. Yeah. And, and, and obviously there are trade-offs to each of the different decisions, yeah. but it allows people to sort of weigh those different trade-offs as opposed to saying like, you know, either you sign a, a deal with a big publishing house or your novel never gets published, right? You know, which exactly. is the way it, it, it basically used to be. You know, there was sort of a small sort of self-publishing field, but that was sort of considered a joke in the past. Whereas now, like it's, it's legitimate. And, and as you said, certainly, you know, there are a lot of books that are self-published that are complete crap. And, right, but that's of course. that's fine, right? There's nothing that doesn't get in the way of anything else. But it it, it opens up, you know, it, it does, you know, a few different things. One, it opens up the ability for for you know books that do get overlooked to you know to find an audience and to to you know build a you know build mm -hmm. you know like for you build a career or whatever it, it might be. Um, but you know, the other point that you made, which I think is really, really important is just the fact that it gives you options that also, you know, it evens the playing field somewhat and it makes this sort of draconian, um, old line publishing contracts no longer as, you know, as tenable as they may have been in the past. And, and like you've, you know, I've definitely heard of, 
of authors who are, you know, are certainly working with the big publishers who say that the, that experience is changing also because those mm -hmm. publishers now realize that they have competition, you know, exactly. and that they have to learn to treat authors better. Um, they may not be all the way there yet, but, but you know, they, they seem to recognize that, you know, when competition comes along, you actually have to treat your customers correctly. Um, yeah. And, so, and, and, and one thing I would add to that is that, I mean, like authors can walk, right? Read your contracts. Yep. And I think that one of the the flip side of what you just said, the flip side of maybe uh, sort of larger publishers that have been in the market for a long time. And I mean, they're profitable, right? Like their business right. still works. So they don't, re there isn't, I mean, the, their pressure is that they would want to work with an author and don't get to, right? Because, because of that new leverage. But the flip side applies to authors. So if you, you know, the as an author, you now need to learn to think yeah. like an entrepreneur, to think like a yeah. publisher. You actually have to look at this as a partnership, right? And that means you have to take ownership of that rather than saying, hey, uh, I just want to write this manuscript and then send it to someone and that's the end, right? right? Like that's the end of my participation. Like that is, that's the flip side, right? Like if you're yep. an author, you now... If you want to, if you want to take advantage of those new opportunities, you also have to uh, change your perspective and take on new challenges to do so. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's something that we've written about a, a bunch too, and and you know, across all the different sort of creative fields, where mm. like it, it is a different experience for for the the you know people who are you know the the artists or the creators or however you want to you know phrase it, in that you know in the past um, there was basically a single path to success. Right yes. now, the the problem was that that excluded a ton of people, and, yes. and some of them excluded for perfectly good reasons. But you know, certainly a lot of people sort of fall through the cracks and don't have the ability to make it. And because of sort of the natures of a lot of those businesses that that may be hit driven, you know, right. people who who might have uh, not as mainstream an audience definitely get overlooked. Um, but you know. Once you you open up that field, it does make it more difficult because there isn't this clear path. There is no like one story to to mm -hmm. success in in any of these fields. And it's you know one of the things. And and on top of that, um, it's not like there are now like okay, well now there are three paths. It's it is a constantly shifting landscape, right? So right. like all of these different technologies that and innovations that keep changing, and the the business models change, and and all of it keeps changing. And so you know I've I've sort of referred to it at times as as you know that that uh, you know creators and artists have to learn sort of improvisational business modeling. Right? <laughs> you know you're so, sort of no. I mean so I actually I when I approach any new book, I try to do things totally differently every time. Like both on the creative lens, uh -huh. like how do I approach writing the book and absolutely on the publishing side, right? Because I think that the only way, like I'm only comfortable when I am constantly uncomfortable, right? And, <laughs> and like that's sort of, you know, I, I don't think that those changes are going to stop happening. And so the, the thing that I always focus on is how can I create, try to make sure that every new story I tell is better than the last one. and. Right. And how can I help readers connect with it? And those are the only two things that I optimize for. And everything else from whatever publishing path is available, whatever random new technologies might be applicable, right? Like, the, like anything can apply. And, and especially if I try to intentionally do things differently every time. Right, right, right. Um, 
Yeah. And and so I you know I this this is a, a nice segue <laughs> actually mm. because you know I think in in doing that in terms of your own life you're sort of trying to figure out like where are these things going how are they changing <laughs> and and how can you do stuff like that's also the process that you go through in terms of figuring out the sort of near future science fiction elements that that fit mm. into your books right mm-hmm. or or I mean do you think that's a, a fair comparison uh yeah i mean i i can see where you're going with it yeah i mean um so when i think about the i guess like the futures that are portrayed in my books um Mm -hmm. and and we've had a few of these conversations right yeah i've actually really appreciated that you've helped uh really shape those um you know there are a few things i keep in mind so the first is that i i don't think science fiction is about prediction um you know and uh and well, I mean, basically, I think prediction is impossible, uh, regardless. Uh, but I, I definitely don't think at least my books are about prediction. So what I'm most interested in is, is not the future, right? But many different possible futures, right? And and like I think that's actually the power of science fiction is that um, it allows us by presenting us with a plausible alternative reality that we can experience, it allows us to step outside of ourselves, right? right? So so that what's interesting is not the widgets that are in the stories, but rather that by showing how the world can be different, when you finish the story and return to the present, you realize previously hidden assumptions that you had about your life or the world you live in today. And I think that that's what's, as a reader, for me, that's one of the most powerful things I get out of speculative fiction, right? Where um, it can really reframe the present for me. So whenever I'm working on a future, right? So like a book that takes place in a fictional future, I'm always interested in is like what could be an interesting future, right? Like what, what are the core, what are some core philosophical questions that maybe we're wrestling with right now in our lives or in society and where might those go? Right. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I always love, I mean, I'm sure everybody is familiar with, you know, Gibson's quote, right? Like the future has already arrived. It's just not evenly distributed. And so I think that rather than sort of doing the traditional, like, Hey, let's pick a trend line and just map it out. Um, I'm always trying to keep my eyes open for pockets of the future that have already arrived Um, and in the world today. And, and there are some pretty, uh, I mean, there are a lot of great places you can look for this, right? So like Gibson himself uh, writes about looking for it in sort of liminal places, right? So he had a great essay in Wired uh, back in 2001 that was about just a visit to Tokyo. Mm -hmm. And, one of the interesting things is like he he goes to the main areas in Tokyo, you know, the huge shopping centers and all that kind of stuff. And then he also seeks out like the weird freeway overpasses where you could pick up a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that's like he actually intentionally does that. He, so when he goes to a place, he's looking for those weird edges, those weird boundaries that aren't just, you know, uh, market street in san francisco right Right. like there, you know like where can you go that no that rarely would people cross that boundary and go to in san francisco so i think that liminal zones are a good place to sort of 
experience those pockets of the future that have already arrived. Hal Varian at Google, the chief economist at Google, you know, he has his whole thing is that like you should look at rich people, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, like if you and that sounds sort of horrible on the face of it, right? Oh <laughs> right. yeah, like look at the super rich, right? Like techno utopianism, um, but uh, but it's actually really. Uh, a really useful heuristic because if you think about the history of technology, right, like trains, planes, cars, every like all, all the big pieces of technology that that humanity has developed over the past few centuries, who were the first people to be able to use them? The rich people who could afford them, right, and basically were buying yeah. them as like ultra expensive toys, right, as sort of like yep. novelty items. And so I think that uh, you know, imagine if you could go back and take a ride on the first train or look at the people who were riding the first train that if you could take that, that might be a really interesting indicator for, for what might, what could happen next. And so I think that that's an interesting pocket to look at in the present, right? What are the ultra rich doing and what would the world look like if everyone could do that all the time? Right. And then the last one that, that I think is also a really interesting place is essentially like hobbyists, right? Uh So, Folks who just do things for the inherent joy of doing them. And that could be, uh, you know, people who just inventors, basically, who are doing that for fun. It could be, I don't know, like uh, base jumpers, right? Like, it do- doesn't matter. Like, you could look at hobbyists in any category. But people who do things for the inherent joy of it often blow past constraints that the rest of us would be s- sort of be stopped by without even realizing it. Right. So they're just, because they're just doing it for fun. They don't have like, they're not trying to make it into a business. They're not trying to like, I don't know. They don't have a larger goal. And, and so I think that that is actually a really interesting place too. I mean, a lot of the sort of original Silicon Valley was built by hobbyists. Right. And, totally. um, and, and so I think that those three pockets are places that I often look for, you know, the liminal, the super rich and the hobbyists. I think those are pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's interesting too. Like it, it's one of the, like the, the point about the super rich was one of the things that like it kind of, uh, annoys me a little bit when people, you know, mock some of the new Silicon Valley startups as sort of just like, you know, pampering the super rich or, or, right. or, you know, because like, you know, the point of each of these is like, you know, if, if the vision is truly realized, like it, you know, can change societies in interesting ways in part by making it so that almost anyone can experience the life of what is, you know, sort of the super rich today. Um, Yeah. My, my favorite one very recently is like the whole scooter thing, right? Yeah, sure. It's sort of like all these scooters suddenly appeared in San Francisco and then sort of immediately the blogosphere went, ew, Look at these right. tech bros on their scooters, right? And and I I I don't I live in Oakland, so I I hadn't actually been in San Francisco in a while, but I I was going to meet a friend there, so I like took Bart and got a, and I was like walking around through downtown, and there were a lot of scooters, and like yep. some of them were annoying, right? Like in the fact that like people would just sort of drop them in the middle of the sidewalk, like that's rude, right? right. Like you know that's that's not a nice thing to do. Um, but when I was looking around, I was like wait a minute, like, cars are terrible, right? Like, like, <laughs> right. like, like, yeah, like, 
like scooters are way better than cars for you know short distance urban yep. transit like on in every possible way right like in every possible way so um instead of complaining about scooters like why don't we just like kick the cars off of one lane on these yeah, streets totally. okay now you won't get in the way of pedestrians which is a totally legit concern right but like get rid of these cars like get everybody on a scooter that, that'd be fabulous right um so yeah. I, yeah so it's like those kinds of things which i think are pretty funny yeah i i, I think that's a good example I mean, we and we actually we just had a podcast a few weeks ago on on the whole scooter question and, oh okay and go. and yeah and and agreed with that that very point where it's like you think about it and it's like you know th now there are some exceptions and like you know you have to be sort of you know able-bodied and and a little bit spry to be able to ride the scooters and, sure, and sure. you know little children and and you know and maybe older people may have more difficulty and so you have all sorts of questions but those are things you can deal with but like yes as a as a first principle you're like yeah you know a scooter is actually for for short uh you know modes of transportation if you're trying to go like half a mile to two miles or so that's a much better system than than cars and yet you know and people just sort of react to things as being like you know different or bad but right you know if if you look at it if you take a step back and you begin to see like all sorts of you know interesting opportunities and you know then you can start to think through and that's where like i i think like you know science fiction or you know the same thing the way you described it as as possible futures which is like the whole concept behind scenario planning where mm. you know you know people who are into scenario planning including myself you know are are, are very mm. insistent that it is not about predicting the future but it is right. about understanding possible futures and then sort of recognizing you know what things are likely to lead to this future what are the the implications of that um and so looking at these things at these pockets of areas of, of interest and saying like well what would happen you know if you know if if this kind of world develops and you know what you know what does that mean and and recognizing some of it may be good some of it may be bad and understanding all of those those different impacts which you know leads to lots of you know uh, fun uh, you know, fun things to, to, to imagine and, and think about and explore, which, you know, in your case allows you to then write fun books about. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, one things. thing, so he, here's like a window into the, the private conversation Mike and I had, you know, I don't know, a couple months ago. Uh, it's, it's okay. So what do you do next? So now you find, uh, sort of in some interesting detail in the present you're like, Oh, that's neat. Um, mm -hmm. so here's like a hot tip for trying to like, I don't know, uh, envision sort of an, an interesting future and that I think a lot of sort of articles in the popular press miss out on and I think could actually uh, sort of gain a lot from. So so let's take an example. Um, you, you know, you read, you, you go online, you go on, I don't know, uh, you know, TechCrunch or something and uh, and you read an article and it's about a tech trend, right? Mm -hmm. It's about some new hot new trend and 90% of the article is about maybe the people working on it and like the status, the current status of whatever it is and maybe why it matters, right? Like that's probably the lead, why it matters. Um, and then at the very end, like the last paragraph, there'll, there'll be like two or three sentences where they'll like, where it'll say something along the lines of, and like time will tell, right? right? <laughs> or, or like this could be big or, you know, like something, yeah. <laughs> something along those lines. And that is a real shame, 
in, in yes. my opinion, because I think <laughs> yeah. that's where things really start to get interesting. And certainly if you're interested yeah. in trying to make sense of the present by imagining the future, that's where you should focus. So if you, if you, if there's some interesting detail that you're like, what if the world was reshaped around this? Don't stop at the first, what if question, right? Yeah. So like, it, it's it's much more like uh, improv, you know, like yes and, right? Like when you're doing improv with partners on a stage, <laughs> like you're right. not supposed to, if, if Mike says, hey, you're under arrest, I'm not supposed to say, no, I don't want to do one that's about me getting arrested, <laughs> right? Like right. that ruins it, right? So you have to run with it and say yes and, like, uh, you know, why is the FBI at my door, whatever, right? Um, yeah. And so I think that with, speculation, like in trying to be thoughtful about imagining the future, you want to do a lot of yes and. So you want to take a what if question and then you want to ask like, you want to go like five levels of depth beyond it, right? So like, what if this changed? How would that change everything else? And then given that everything else has changed in that way, what would happen next? And how would that, you write you and you keep going? And only when you get to like the fifth or sixth or seventh sort of, um, iteration, that's when you get something that's really thought provoking, right? Because suddenly when you're starting at that seventh iteration, everybody else is thinking, oh shit, how did we get here? Right, right. right. How, it's, how it's, do we, you know, yeah. I, I was going to say, it's, it's funny that you said that because I don't think you, you know this, but um, in our TechDirt editorial guidelines that we give to all of the, the, the regular contributors or staff writers or whatever, um, it's, we specifically have a prohibition on what we refer to as uh, magic eight ball statements. Um, <laughs> Maybe this is why I like reading TechDirt so much. <laughs> yeah. And it is like, and the, the specific, the first example I use is, you know, time will tell should never right. appear on TechDirt because that is the <laughs> dumbest statement yeah. in the world because totally. of course time will tell. That's not why anyone is reading. Who the fuck cares that time will tell? Like, yeah. you know, you want to make this interesting, which is you're supposed to be doing, if you're writing for TechDirt, at least like, you know, I want you to analyze, like, what the hell do you think this means? You're not always <laughs> going to be right, but, but you know, express an opinion, take it somewhere and do something with it. Time will tell. We'll see. Who knows? Like, right. that, like you know, like, Ah, oh, that that is the most frustrating thing to me in the world, and yet totally. that it is a very typical thing that the that the press does, and and yeah, so like, and that's from like the earliest days. I mean, I think we've had that in sort of our, our you know our very first editorial guideline, which is now like you know seventeen or eighteen years old at this point, and it's it's one that I think is really important. I always sort of try and remind people about because I think it it says something just just that that thought about like how you approach these these different kinds of stories. So it's funny to hear you sort of bring that up in the same. Well, and I I do think it's a skill. It's a skill you can practice. And I think that it's not all of these journalists' fault that they don't speculate that way. They're never trained to, right? Like if you go to journalism school, they're like, okay, you know, what are are the three questions? Like what, who, why, you know, when, right? Like they're answering all of those questions. They're fact-checking. They're getting multiple sources. They're doing everything right. It's just that like traditionally – uh, thoughtful speculation has not been part of journalism's mandate, yeah. right? And so a lot of journalists actually just have never done it before. And and they're, and people who are good writers and re- reporters or what I don't even mean this just has to be journalists, but it's like that's not a thing that's 
trained in business school either, or other, you know, these different lenses that we, that society brings to bear on the world and that we get trained in. Um, there aren't very many that actually focus on like developing your imagination as a muscle, right. As like, how can I actually develop this skill, use this as a frame through which to analyze and make sense of the world. And I think it is a very useful lens, but there, you know, there, there, there's very little formal training in how to polish it. And yeah. so, and I think that that's actually a big gap, right? Like it would actually be really cool. I think that, uh, the world and people would gain a lot if maybe there were more rigorous, uh, opportunities for learning that skill rather than just sort of figuring it out on your own. Um, uh, But, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, if listeners are interested in that, I mean, I would really encourage everyone to just try it. Like it's just fun. Right. And you'll often start realizing things, having done the exercise, you'll, you'll start realizing some really interesting things about the world because of it. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it goes back to, I mean, you were talking about like, you know, you and I getting together and, and sitting down and, and, mm. you know, it, it's, it's a really fun process where you sort of start to quiz me, like, you know, mm. where, where you're like, well, but then what, you know, what would happen then? So like, if this happens, if this is the world that we're looking at, um, you know, what is, what would that mean, uh, you know, in, in terms of like policymaking or in terms of, you know, how, how people's lives would be or things like that. And we just start to walk through these different possibilities. Like, Oh, maybe it would look like this, or maybe yeah. it would look like that. And then you start to bring in like different things. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think has been fun in our conversations is, you know, we'll start to drag in like completely different, you know, areas or, you know, stories that we'll hear about like, oh, well, you know, there was this technology that did this. And maybe right. you would see a sort of similar thing happen if, you know, if, if X, Y, or Z happened. And it's it's sort of a really fun process that that sort of sharpens your 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 critical thinking skills is, yeah. is you know um in, in terms of like how these these different technologies might impact the world and it's it's actually a really fun process um we should do it again soon <laughs> yeah no that'd be great and actually that that reminded me of one other thing that that might be sort of a useful tool for yeah. listeners which i think um fiction does particularly well as a form and that I think a lot of other people with totally different lives who've never, maybe they don't even read fiction, let alone write it, um, could, could benefit from. And that is that when, when I write a piece of speculative fiction, it's a story, right? And stories are about people. And so when I all, for all of the sort of, uh, all of the, thought that goes into thinking through what the future, this future might look like, it ultimately boils down to how it impacts the actual lived experience of the characters, of the point of view characters, right? So like, it's not, it's not about the sort of uh, high level intellectual argument of like, why the world should, how this will change institutions or something like that. It's actually about like, Hey, how does this impact Kelly's life? Right? Like how, like how is her life different? And if we're experiencing that future through her eyes, how, how would it, how would we even notice? Right. Um, And, and I think that that's actually a really sort of underutilized frame as well. Like um, a lot of the times we get a, a lot of folks who are a lot of very smart people 
end up being very intellectual in their analysis of the future, yeah. which is which is useful. I'm not saying it's not important. It's just that it it can often really help when you're like, okay, I don't want to know like how blockchain is going to impact fiat currency. I want to know like when I buy a cappuccino, like right. is that different? Like right? Like, <laughs> like and if it's not, I don't care, right? Or, or right. It's, you know like uh, or does it only matter to like someone who's on the in the Fed, right? Or does it right. actually matter to like me when I'm wandering around doing my thing? Um, you know, that's sort of a silly example, right? But but I think it. No, no, it's you know. it's not a silly example. I mean, right? It's it's the same thing. It's the same mistake that that marketers sometimes make. Or, yes, or, true. Or also, that true. I think like a lot of kind of a kind of like legacy companies often make, which is you know they start to think you know the job is like how do I sell this product? Right? I have this right. product. I've built this product. How do I sell this product? Rather than how am I improving the lives of my customers? Right? Yeah. And so, you know, the the companies that succeed and that successfully sort of transition through different innovations and across competition and things like that are the ones that are taking a larger picture and saying like, you know, what am I what am I selling? I'm not selling a car, I'm selling transportation. I'm I'm selling right. getting from point A to point B, right? right? That's that's the value that people find in in what I am am selling and I can make that experience better and I can change it and do things like that. But like it's it's the exact same thing, right? You know, you know, focusing in on just like a single technology as opposed to what is the experience or what are people living, um, right. you know, I think is is really missing the point. And and you you miss the big picture and you you actually tend to miss the real opportunities that way. Yeah, true, absolutely. Yeah, so this is this is fascinating and interesting <laughs> stuff and, and i'm sure we could go on for for, for much longer but but i think we've, we've sort of hit the the podcast limit <laughs> at, at this point but but uh if you have enjoyed this conversation then you will also probably enjoy elliot's books which again uh elliot pepper is his name you can find all of his books uh on amazon and you have a website too that Yep, just if you just Google my it's my name.com, Elliot yeah. But yeah, if you Google it, everything will pop up. Yes, yes. Uh, Google has taken over all of our lives. And so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's very on theme. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but Elliot, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast and having a really interesting and fun discussion. I'm sure uh, people enjoyed it. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And we will be back next week. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thanks. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and pick up the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and pick up the